0: Hi, and welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. I am the mother of three adult children. I have two sons and a daughter, and both of my sons are currently sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Incarceration is painful for everyone, and I share my story with the hope that it will unsettle people and motivate them to organize and build non carceral and healing communities. Brian and I love to do this work and we're glad that so many people are listening and supporting the podcast by sharing it with friends and family and through their financial donations. You too can support beyond prisons by becoming a patron for one, five, 10 or $20 per month over on our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash We're also on social media on Twitter at beyond underscore prisons on Facebook at facebook.com backslash beyond prisons podcast, and on Instagram at beyondprisons, one word. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons wherever you listen to podcasts. For this episode, Brian and I sat down with Dr. Sarah Tyson for a conversation about her work as a philosopher, anti-violence advocate, and prison educator. We explored the contradiction between anti-violence work and its reliance on a criminal punishment system, what it's like to do philosophy in prison, the importance of building relationships with people inside, and so much more. Sarah Tyson is Associate Professor of Philosophy and affiliated faculty of Women and Gender Studies at the University of Colorado Denver. Her research focuses on questions of authority, history, and exclusion with a particular interest in voices that have been marginalized in the history of thinking. She has published essays in Death and Other Penalties, Philosophy in a Time of Mass Incarceration, Deconstructing the Death Penalty, Derrida's Seminars and a New Abolitionism, Feminist Philosophy Quarterly, Hypatia, Metaphilosophy, and Radical Philosophy Review. She edited with Joshua Hall. Philosophy in Prison, The Love of Wisdom in the Age of Mass Incarceration. She recently published Where Are the Women? Why Expanding the Archive Makes Philosophy Better, which focuses on women in the history of philosophy and argues for engagement with thinkers not typically considered philosophers, including Sojourner Truth. We hope you enjoy this conversation.
1: <laughs> thank here. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Really
0: thrilled to have you and it's uh, long, long overdue. Just going to ask you uh, to beginning to talk a little bit about who you are and uh, the work that you do.
1: Awesome. Th- uh, yeah, thanks again for having me and for the opportunity to talk with you all. And um, so I am... Um, you know, officially or professionally, I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Colorado Denver. And I teach, um, I teach in philosophy, and I also teach in our women and gender studies program. Um, And then I also have a history of activism and being interested in um, teaching in prisons, but also anti-violence activism. And some of my Philosophical work has been driven by my experiences um, with that anti-violence activism. And then when I started to regularly go into prisons to do things like read philosophy with people inside, I started to see how prisons worked. It was actually, this is making it sound more gradual than it was, the first time I went into a prison for a philosophy class, I was struck not only by um it was on death row not only by what a terrible place this would be to die but by what Mm -hmm. a terrible place it was for people to live and i very quickly got caught up in the um, contradiction that so much anti-violence work depends on places like prisons and practices like policing to end violence when prisons and policing are, are such sources of violence um, and such sites of violence. Um, so that I had just finished my dissertation. It was about six months after I'd finished my dissertation. And I was supposed to be mining the dissertation and making my career and all these things. And I was in this class on death row in Tennessee. And I thought, I have to respond to what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing philosophically. Um, and so that opened up this whole new um line of research and thinking for me. Um, which you're not supposed to do six months after you finish the yeah. dissertation. <laughs> you know, like that's like you you get counseled not to do that kind of thing. Um but it was a situation in which if I didn't start approaching it philosophically, um it was gonna it was just gonna get really messy really fast and I I I wasn't gonna keep doing philosophy, you know, like it was either I dealt with this philosophically or I'm not sure what, um, it seemed like the only option.
2: Yeah. Could you, uh, you know, I'd be curious to hear you talk a little bit more about that. If you can talk about some of the anti-violence, uh, work that you've done and some of the work you've done with philosophy, uh, in prison.
1: Sure. So, um, I had pretty straight ahead, uh, feminist interests in anti-violence work. So I would do things like, um, like bystander training at my university and, um, be interested in, I went to a Quaker school, and so there's a large discourse about anti-violence within um, Quaker communities, and I was very interested in this and would, um, you know, sort of have this involvement with feminism in that way, where it's, you're doing things like supporting survivors, or um, helping people learn how to intervene into things like, um, interpersonal violence that that occurs at parties or in Mm -hmm. intimate relationships and what began when i began to go to prisons regularly what struck me about things like a bystander training is i would often be in these trainings with people like campus police who had a gun strapped to them Mm
0: -hmm. at an
1: anti-violence training and i i started to think this is sort of odd um i'm not sure what i think about this and then when i started to get to know people inside Um, in deeper ways and to, um, you know, build those relationships and have that community inside, it just really no longer that discourse of the state is the answer to the problem of interpersonal violence and domestic violence. That answer no longer held for me. And I could no longer think that feminist, feminist complicity with that kind of state violence Um, was any sort of way out or any sort of address or any sort of um, uh, answer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I should say that I was slow on the uptake because um, I had had a family member put in jail earlier in my life, um, shortly after, shortly before I started graduate school. And I had had this experience of confronting the state in some very, up close and personal ways of trying to get that person out of jail. And I experienced that as this, just being sort of taken into this great big monster and trying to extract a loved one Mm -hmm. from the belly of this beast. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really wasn't until I was regularly going into a prison um, and developing those sort of long-term relationships that I realized there was a problem to be worked on there, that I didn't just have to try to deal with my own trauma of having had that experience um, in sort of like a therapeutic setting or in in my personal life, that I needed to approach this, when I say philosophically, that meant through activism, through political work, right, like every way I could, I needed to be making sure that nobody else had the experience that I did, and that nobody else was sitting in a prison. But it. I, like I said, I was slow on the uptake. It took all, you know, sort of the accretion or accumulation of these different experiences for me to realize that the kind of anti-violence work that I had been involved with was actually part of the problem and not part of the solution. Mm.
0: I appreciate you uh, sharing that. And I think that, you know, um, I'm in the same boat uh, or at least was in the same boat in terms of being slow on the uptake. Uh, it took me a while uh, to sort of refine my thinking around mm-hmm. this. and I feel like that's an ongoing project. Um, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. really, in terms of you know, getting clear about where I stood, that there's so many contradictions and there's so much unlearning mm-hmm. that, we're constantly going through, even if we're immersed in that work, you know, so, yeah, you know, I've talked about this on a podcast before where I um, you know, th- my graduate work was on reentry, and you know, by way of thinking about um felony disenfranchisement, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, that gave me a glimpse into this. But I think by the time, you know, like, it took me a while to develop an abolitionist politics and to understand what that actually is and Mm -hmm. how important that is. And I find myself saying this a lot, um, you know, uh, or have found myself saying this a lot over the last few years that, you know, most of us aren't born to revolutionaries. And, you know, it's like, we're often quick to like jump, on someone who hasn't quite got it all figured out, but I'm like, I also feel sometimes really ill-equipped to be the person yeah. talking about this stuff, <laughs> you know, it could yeah. be imposter syndrome or what have you, but yeah. I feel like there's also, um, there's just so much and there are people who have really spent a lifetime thinking about these issues, working on these issues and doing, you know, things in, uh, in different ways to fight against this behemoth that, mm-hmm. you know, my little whatever I'm doing um, is, you know, pales in comparison, right? So, yeah, yeah and I
1: think, I think there's, yeah, I think there's this work you have to do continually to have compassion for where you were coming from Mm -hmm. and where you just were in order to be able to, because abolition is a horizon, right? It's not Mm -hmm. this destination. And so to be able to continually open yourself up to seeing things in new ways and continually allowing your critique to grow and continually hearing new voices who say something you think that can't be right, but maybe there's something in it I really need to listen to and to allow yourself to take that next step towards the horizon that's going to expand away from you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's incredibly difficult and it happens, as you said, over, over a long time and, and with lots of different experiences. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah. Um, it's
0: something else that you said, uh, in describing, you know, your path toward, you know, the work, uh, that you wanted to be doing that you are doing now, um, was, uh, contradiction between, you know, anti-violence work on campus, um, you know, in the presence of the police in these trainings mm-hmm. and, you know, um, yeah. So I, I, I want you to talk a little bit more about that and, you know, maybe, um, if you have thoughts about how we can, um, challenge that, change it, uh, you know, or move us closer to, something where we don't always have to include campus police. I mean, Mm -hmm. many, you know, many people on campus are mandatory reporters. So we don't get an option in terms of whether we access, you know, the mechanisms of the state. uh, We're required to do that. Uh, So can you talk about, you know, like walking that line and
1: Sure. Yeah. No, it's a really important set of questions I hear you asking. And I think um, one of the things, this is something that Alisa uh, Bieria, who mm-hmm. was one of the founders of Communities Against Rape and Abuse in Seattle and has written a lot um, about both that, the work they have done, and then is an important contributor to Insight. Um, she talks about seeing ourselves as capable of of addressing the conflicts in our lives. And I think one of the things that happens when the police are present or when we're told that what we have to do is call the police is that we tend to think that they're the people who can handle the situation or the conflict or the structures that we're a part of. And I think if we begin to try to take back that sense that we're the people who can respond to the violence in our lives and the harm in our lives and think together about what that means and how we want to be responding and what kind of community resources we have and what kind of community building we're going to need to do to be capable of addressing um, the harms that we see going on, the kinds of structures of violence that we have um, that are that are creating the substance of our lives, including the police, right? How are we gonna organize our communities um, to be safe from the police, to be safe from um, intimate partner abuse, to be safe from you know I think child sexual abuse is something that I've written on. I think it's something that is that particularly feeds on a culture of secrecy and silence around mm-hmm. harm. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we create communities that are are totally intolerant of that kind of child abuse, that kind of um, harm towards children that doesn't immediately engage in the state because the state's response to child abuse is extremely punitive, extremely ineffective. And this is part of the reason that people don't report to the state. Mm -hmm. Um, When it comes to being a mandatory reporter, which um, I also am in my capacity, I think there's one of the things that's troubling about that is the way that people can't come and talk to just come talk to a professor who they might find helpful in thinking through the issues they're dealing with or a situation that they're in or something that's happened to them before. They can't just come and talk to somebody because you're immediately going to have to betray their confidence and go to somebody um, at the institution. Now it might be the case that somebody you're talking to does want the institution to step in. And so I think being that conduit, I, I think that survivor self-determination is so important that I, regularly offer myself up as that conduit, you know, do you need help accessing these services that are available through this institution? Mm-hmm. But I think a powerful move that you can also make is to say, if you think a conversation's coming, and I think, you know, once you've had the conversation once, you can sort of see them coming um, when somebody sits down in your office, you can say, you know what, I'm a mandatory reporter, so anything you tell me, I'm going to have to pass on to somebody. But we could hypothetically talk about something that's happened, or we can talk about something that's happened to a friend of yours who's not a student here, and then I'm not required to report any of that, and we can kind of talk about what's going on, and I make clear what I can talk about is is the philosophical issues that you're raising, That's right? Mm-hmm. What I'm trained in is philosophy, and so I can bring my my knowledge and my experience in philosophy, and we can muck around in the guts of this thing philosophically together, and then you can make decisions, and I can lay out some ideas about what resources there are here, and you can make decisions about this hypothetical case, right? And so I think working around in that way, giving people a space where you, you can be somebody they can talk to, knowing the limits of your own expertise and what you can do. Um, so I think just being creative about that, and that's not something I came up with myself, you know, that's something that colleagues and I have talked about, because... Because it is hard, you know. You want to be a good member of your community, and mandatory reporting is how that's been defined right now, um, and that's that's too bad. I understand why that's happened because the desire for people to just brush things under the rug—it's sort of an institutional effort to not let um, issues get brushed under the rug. But the the thing that happens over and over again is that survivor self determination gets abridged, and people can't make decisions about their own lives. Um, and that kind of loss of ability to make decisions is a hallmark of many interpersonal harms, and to mm-hmm. then be another agent of that is um, is just a huge problem. and so I think you know you have to kind of pregame with yourself, how can I work around that to make sure somebody's getting getting what they need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm
2: yeah i i really appreciate that and it you know it raises something that i wanted to to bring up with you as well it's a little bit um of a transition but Mm -hmm. i think it touches on some of the things you're talking about here um referring back to a paper that you were co-author on feminism and the carceral state the gender responsive justice community accountability and the epistemology of anti-violence um one of the struggles i think you know in in uh, abolitionist organizing, or even just talking about abolitionist ideas um, that we've talked about a lot on this show, and that pretty much anybody, you know, should know who's uh, been engaged in this space is the kind of resistance that you face from people when you talk about a world without prisons, or when you try mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. sort of challenge, um, uh, challenge those ideas. And, you know, for me, I think some of the most frustrating resistance uh, is the perspective that you get from people that are like sort of Closer to you in this space, so I'm thinking of like reform-minded liberals, or in the example that you use in this uh, in this paper, the gender-responsive justice movement mm-hmm. that you know is interested in change and reform. But you know, there is that um, there's a step missing there, right? Uh, and I think you know you had a great discussion in the paper about the power of um, dominant epistemology and the gulf between those who are in a place to question the dominant epistemology and those who are not. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can just talk a little bit about that, that gulf. And in particular, um, you know, getting back to some of what you were just talking about, the importance of locating state violence in that analysis and the presence of state violence in like the everyday lives of the people leading that work. Cause I think that's pinpointing like a core difference between reformist and evolutionist frameworks that's worth pointing out. And I think can be both obvious and kind of like subtle at the
1: same time. Sure. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and thanks for reading the piece. Um, one thing that I found remarkable when we started, when Brady Heiner and I started doing the research on that article, or or we were, you know, sort of in the midst of it, is that uh, some of the people who are the biggest advocates of gender-responsive justice um, had abolitionist leanings early on in the in the 90s. Were saying things like we should abolish prisons, or we should at least begin to think about abolishing prisons by abolishing women's prisons. They were saying these very radical things coming out of their desire to think about women's experiences of incarceration. And then, you know, you sort of check in 15 years later or see what they're doing 20 years later, and they're helping design um, ways of surveilling and monitoring and imprisoning women for the state of California, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so how does that happen? How does somebody go from thinking we need to abolish prisons to you know, basically getting a grant to help design a better prison. So an extremely reformist view. Right. Um, and I, one of the things we noticed is that uh, f- people who were, who stayed close to the experiences of state violence, either because that's where they live or because they were really good at listening to people who live close to state violence. And so I'm thinking here about Beth Ritchie's work of interviewing women who are um, in jail on Rikers Island. So folks who either live close to state violence or make sure that they stay in close communication and are listening to people who are living close to state violence, sort of in the everyday quotidian existence of state violence, couldn't make that kind of transformation to a reformist view, right? They Their abolitionism deepens, or they become just increasingly suspicious and critical of imprisonment, incarceration, um, it, you know, sort of advanced and extenuated ways of surveilling people and um, the state inflicting violence in their lives. So I think it really matters if you're living, um, if you're living with police violence in your community, if you're um, experiencing that sort of surveillance every day, then th- it is harder theoretically and academically to dismiss it and mm-hmm. to not let it be part of your analysis. But then I think there's also, there are methodological commitments you can make um, if that's not your everyday experience to not let that just sort of go away or fade away. Because one of the tricks I think of state violence is that for some people, it just isn't part of their everyday.
2: Right, um,
1: right. Right, and so, and for a lot of academics, that can be true this is part of the reason campus police are organized the way they are, right, is for some academics to protect them from an experience of having to even see how the state operates, right, even having to see how policing works. Um, And who's getting protected. I mean, this is where it's interesting to see who could let go of the analysis of state violence and who couldn't, right. um, and this is where I th- I think that the analysis of white feminism is really important because in this historical moment one of the things that's getting protected is white femininity, um, mm-hmm. right? Like white femininity exists so close to these normative structures of power, it's not at the center. Um, Mm-hmm. But it's so close, and prisons are often in the name of white femininity, right? What's getting protected here? um white women, right, from these harms like rape, like domestic abuse, like child abuse, and so I think if you don't really take seriously um, how that can operate in really insidious and deep ways that um I was just r- remembering that a A police officer came to my kindergarten class (laughs) you know so this is like a million years ago Um, and we were introduced to officer friendly and he told us all about how great the police were and Mm -hmm. how they were there to serve us and if we were ever in trouble we should turn to the police and um that's a message that I got as a little white kid in the suburbs at a pretty well-funded school Mm -hmm. right whereas for other children what they're experiencing is a what's called a resource officer who is there to surveil and potentially arrest them and often arrest those children, right? So they're not meeting officer friendly as the person to turn to when you're in trouble. They're this is somebody who's making sure they go to class on time with the threat mm-hmm. of being arrested hanging over their head. Mm-hmm. And so I think those kind of deep experiences of 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 the state, right, in the form of of how a police officer, for instance, shows up at your at your school, um really inform people's understanding and it's not that that's then um fate it's not that you know the little white kid from the suburbs is always going to see the police as friendly i don't anymore but i do know that i have to in in my life because i can go a day without seeing a police officer i need to remember um and continually listen to people for whom they can't go a day without seeing a police officer who is a threat to them Right. Right. And so what does that mean? And I think there are these methods, and I think Beth Ritchie's um, use of Black feminism, for instance, is a method of continually listening to what state violence looks like for people who live in it, in its institutions, um, surveilled by it, and who can't escape it and can't turn to it when something happens that they need help with. Right.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate that answer. And I think the thing about state the the having the state violence in your analysis too, I think you know your paper touches on this too. I think the flip side of that is reducing everything to like individual yes. cases, um, and I think that's I think that's a really important part of it. And you know, I was going to ask you as a follow up, but you kind of touched on it right there at the end. You know, about the kinds of skills that um, you know I, I had a very similar experience as a child growing up in like a, a very white community in rural Connecticut a state mm-hmm. that's like extremely segregated uh, mm-hmm. in New England. And, you know, I was going to ask you, like, what kinds of skills do you think we need to develop within ourselves to encourage people to sort of make the leap to like the third loop, as you call it, in
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, in the paper? Um, and I think, you know, obviously listening to people who are in proximity and affected by state violence is, is perhaps the most obvious one. Um, so I appreciate you you saying that.
1: Yeah, and I also I think there's this other part to that, which is um my experience of building relationships with folks who are incarcerated is also what it takes to be able to speak from the experience of incarceration um, in ways that you trust that somebody's going to hear you, and also speaking in ways that you just know people aren't going to hear you, but you say that anyway. Um, and I, so I think there are skills there also that people gain with presenting their experiences of of violence in ways that are meant to be both legible and where they folks know that what they're saying is not going to be legible to a lot of people, but they say it because it's you know the 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 woman four cells down from them who's going to hear this someday, and that's it's going to make her life a little bit more livable in this institution. Um, but it's not going to be legible to a lot of folks reading that poem or that story or that piece of philosophical writing. So I think there are skills there too of of um, trying to trying to talk about something that's so huge and that's um that is so huge in all of our lives, and some of us just don't have to see it every day, and some of us mm-hmm. do and it's that's both those things are difficult um. And both of those things are difficult for abolitionism, mm-hmm. and so the problems the sort of epistemic problems or the problems of knowledge are different mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um I had some questions um but <laughs> <laughs> oh no, what happened to them. <laughs> <laughs> They're still there. Now I have so many other so many other <laughs> questions and a whole different yeah. set of thoughts, you know, that okay. that emerged from that conversation. But um what, you know, I'm glad that you raised this as part of um your response to Brian's question was your analysis of uh white feminism and you know who are we um who's being protected um, you know, with these uh anti-violence laws and you know, other laws that are, um, you know, targeted at um, people who are victims of uh, intimate partner violence and and other harms. But, um, you know, as as you were talking about um, resource officers and the contrast between, you know, officer friendly and and resource officers, I don't think I've shared this uh, on, on, the podcast before, but, you know, I remember when my son went to high school, um, you know, and he was uh, at Germantown high school in Philly and this place was just like, Oh God. Um, when I went to register him, you know, we had to walk through metal detectors mm-hmm. and, you know, we were given a tour and there were, you know, the doors were metal doors with very small windows. Um There were, you know, Police dogs, canines, um, in the building, um, you know. And, and the first time he got uh, suspended in high school, uh, and I got called up there to pick him up, he was sitting in a room that literally had bars on the door, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you know, so and wow. and it it wasn't like that was the first time, you know, that it it hit me. Like we had, you know, by then I feel like a developed enough of an understanding of how these systems are playing out when we talk about, you know, the school to prison pipeline and the ways in which, you know, um, various policies and approaches in, you know, uh, K to 12 education uh, really do, you know, uh, I'm not going to say they mirror what you know, it, they mirror what's going to happen down the road mm-hmm. or what they hope happens. Mm-hmm. If we mm-hmm. want to take a sort of, um, you know, that kind of deterministic kind of
1: perspective. Of, I think they're of training, right? They're like a form of training. training.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's training, you know? So it's like the, the yard was as bare as it could be with, yeah, okay. you know, just like barbed wire fencing all around and what have you. So it's like this in so many ways, the architecture and design of schools, which are supposed to be for children, mirrored, you know, um, mm-hmm. prisons or prison-like um, institutions. And I'm not saying that, you know, schools are prisons, but they do behave in carceral ways and they do mm-hmm. take on these um, these strategies of uh, that, that are being deployed in, in other areas. Um, you know, so that just really uh, struck me. And, and at the same time, you know, really infuriated me because, you know, like I see um, a lot of, you know, I have a lot of friends and, you know, even family that have moved to the suburbs um, to quote unquote escape the kind of um, the bad schools, right, Right. if you will. And, you know, the police and other um, law enforcement, you know, Those are the people that they get their career day speech from at school, right? Like, you want to be a police officer. This is a good thing for you. Um, You know, and and less of a questionnaire, but just, you know, reflecting back on, you know, the, the things that you raised, which I think are also really important part of the broader conversation. But um you know, to to pivot and take this uh, in a different direction, and I read um, I read the piece that that Brian uh, talked about, but the one that I'd like to discuss is an earlier piece, uh, your twenty fourteen piece, uh, called "Experiments in Responsibility: Pocket yeah. Parks, Radical yeah. Anti-Violence Work, and a Social Ontology of Safety." And you know, what I appreciate about what you said in that piece or your analysis in that piece is um, the component of, you know, residency restrictions and what these things do to people with criminal histories, particularly in terms of where people with um, sexual, you know, uh, sexual violence um, histories get to live. Right. Um, And I'd like you to talk a little bit about, you know, um, a little bit about that piece. If, that's not sure. putting you on the spot?
1: No, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, that, I was driven to think about, um, to write that piece by thinking about things like residency restrictions. Um, because there's a logic there. The, the logic, I think, that um, is in something like having people register as sex offenders after they've served time is the thought that if the state keeps track of those people, then they can't do more harm. After they're out of prison um, and so a few there's a few assumptions at work there. The first is that um, the kinds of sexual violence that are happening in prisons and jails are somehow not important to us, right so there's that assumption that mm-hmm. um, we don't really have to worry about what was happening in a, in prison or jail and we know that u s prisons and jails um, as well as immigrant detention facilities are sites of um, really just systematic and extensive uh, sexual abuse and sexual violence. So from a feminist perspective, right, like feminists should just be tearing down the walls of jails, prisons and immigrant detention centers if they care at all about sexual Mm -hmm. violence Mm -hmm. and sexual abuse. But so there's this assumption, right, that um, so people who are serving time for some kind of sexual harm we don't really have to worry if they're in jail or prison because they're in jail or prison. So they're somehow set aside, but when they come out, the state better be keeping track of them in a, in a, in a unique way, in a way that other people who come out of jail or prison aren't tracked um, and that they should be told where they can and cannot live. And these restrictions do things like, they'll say things like you can't live within um, a certain amount of a a certain distance from a school or a, a park. And so, communities will do things like build a small park so that nobody who was, who has served time or been charged with a a sexual harm can live in their community. And the thought I think there is that that will protect that community from harms like sexual abuse or sexual assault. Um, It doesn't, and it doesn't create that protection for a number of reasons. One of which is it's not the case that people then don't live in those communities um if they if they've served time or you know done ha- committed some sort of sexual harm um it means that they can't live in those communities openly um mm-hmm. so we will see people you know be forced into homelessness because they can't find a place to live in a city and so they will then will you know who knows where they are living but i think the deeper problem is that we think that there are these sexual predators out there who just go from victim to victim and they're luring children out of um, schoolyards and that that is the um, sort of classic and most common way that these harms are are happening. And that right. is just not the case. Um mm-hmm. the that majority, they're strangers. That they're strangers, yeah. The majority of children are harmed by people who know them. Um, you know, and they're harmed by people who know them who have been cultivating relationships with other adults in that child's life. And so if we want to protect children, this is, if you read the Lewis Free report about the Penn State case, it's really illuminating about this, about how the other adults were cultivated to um, enable Jerry Sandusky to um, systematically abuse children. And so if you want to build a community in which those kinds of harms can't happen, it's not about restricting where people can live, right? It's about thinking about how are, how are we treating children? How do we view children's bodily autonomy, for instance? How are we talking about things like authority and who has authority over children and who can tell children what they may do with their bodies and what they may not do um are we listening to ourselves when we think i don't think i think something's going on here that isn't okay um and i think i need to check in about that and not stay quiet and i think i need to name what so often gets treated as secret and and a problem of the child's right not of the adults and so i think um these communities who do things like build pocket parks and think this will drive all the people who commit sexual harms out of our community, right? They're misunderstanding how those residency restrictions actually play out, what the actual logistics of that are. By and large, that drives people into homelessness. But the other thing is they're misunderstanding the nature of harm and who's gonna harm their children. Um, By and large, really statistically, it's not a stranger who's wandering by a schoolyard. Right It's a family member, it's a teacher, it's a coach, and that can lead mm-hmm. i as a parent I know to just enormous paranoia <laughs> um but the way i I have chosen to respond to that, and that I think philosophically we what I'm trying to do in that article sort of argue for and that I think will make us safer is that we we think about how we build communities in which child abuse can't happen in which it's it's unthinkable um and that takes a lot of work and that takes things like thinking about one's own parenting practices or one's own way of thinking about children and talking to children and listening to children and what we think childhood is, Um, right? These really deep questions, they're deep philosophical questions, but they're also everyday practices, right? How do you listen to children? Do you listen to children? Do you think that children, when they speak, are saying something that has to be heard or is it something that's easy to dismiss? Um, Right. Jerry Sandusky, the people that Jerry Sandusky hurt were saying things about the harm they experienced. I think, you know, another more recent case is the the, all the stories we're hearing about priests who abused children that these people repeatedly told people in Mm -hmm. their lives that they were being abused. Right. The way those priests were able to continue to exercise those harms and practices was because those children weren't believed. Um, Because people told them to be quiet and to respect authority. Um, And so I think those are the kinds of practices we have to think about and work together and talk with our neighbors about and talk with our partners about and talk with our friends about and our families. Um, You know, so there are those, I think this has become more common where people won't make children hug family members anymore. Now they'll say things like would you like to give a hug or a high five or wave or mm-hmm. um you know like it's a small practice but part of what it's doing is building a community that's a little less tolerant of making children do things with their bodies that they don't want to do
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean um you know uh, something else that uh that i see or you know um thought about in reading this piece was that as someone, you know, and I, I did my, my research on um, my graduate research on reentry. entry um, mm-hmm. is that this kind of, you know, perpetual punishment, right. Yeah. Really it, it's, it extends the carceral state yeah. right into totally. communities, but it also doesn't ever allow re like reentry yeah. is like the way that it's currently constituted it like never ends right so (laughs) when you finally re-entered it's like if it's not if serving your you know your sentence um is not enough right Right. and we add things like you know parole and probation and other ways to you know surveil you and the whole host of collateral consequences um you know and really work to disrupt your life as much as possible. Once you are, Mm -hmm. you know, um, are out in the quote unquote free world, wherever. Yeah.
1: Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And really exploiting those vulnerabilities, right. That we, we need things like shelter and relationships and food and that the state's really good at continuing to exploit those vulnerabilities Um, not just in prison, right, but through probation, parole, through residency restrictions to exploit those basic human needs um, to the end of exerting like very great violence on these people under the, it's legitimated by a story about protecting people, Mm -hmm. right? that will keep us safe. It just, it simply isn't doing that. It's not effective.
0: Yeah. And then we do it in a way, you know, with uh, this notion of pocket parks. Right. So yeah. pocket parks seem like, you know, on the surface, this sounds like a great idea. We're going right. to build a park, you know, really benign, like how totally. can you be against a park? You know, right. what kind of monster are you? Right. Um, right. But, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. When you start unpacking this, I mean, it, it, you know, and I know in an article you said something about, you know, some of the smaller ones were like a thousand square feet, which is yeah. nothing, you know, yeah. it's like. It's nothing that's not even a dog run. Like what is that? Yeah. Um <laughs> so
1: I mean it's my house, you know, like what's not, <laughs> you know, not My house is my house is I was too. You know, <laughs> talking no
0: about
2: jolly. building,
1: yeah.
0: you know, a green space, yeah. for a green space for a community where it's like, you know, where the goal is um really so fucked up, you know, yeah. to yeah. prohibit people and i'm not so sure i mean i know you're you, you're you're a nicer human being than i am um <laughs> so I, I you're giving them the benefit of the doubt in terms of understanding you know the the impact of this um you know uh, of these actions and and strategies that they're implementing but i feel like you know if the only reason you're willing to put a park up in your community is so that you can exclude a particular Mm -hmm. class or category of people, right? Like you've already Mm -hmm. revealed, you know, something about who you are and what your beliefs are, you know, um, regarding um, uh, notions of community and, you know, safety and whatever else, right? Because it's only about your perceived safety and not everyone's perceived safety. It's not about all, it's about your own personal safety. Well, and
1: that's the, yeah, this is I think the lie, right? Is that somehow if you exploit other people's vulnerability, you will be less vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, what's tricky is that for some people, that's true, right? That that that's actually working for some people. Mm-hmm. That kind of exploitation, that kind of offloading of vulnerability onto other people, is working. Um, what I think then, what I think the lie yeah. you have to tell yourself is that that's okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, that's the part where I think. I, I get that people. This is this is the feminist part, right? Of my analysis is that um, people are right to not want um, sexual violence and sexual abuse to be happening in their lives and in their mm-hmm. communities. They're totally right to desire that. Um, the lie is that these forms of state violence are going to make that happen. What it can do, really quite effectively, is displace it. Right. So some people don't have to be up against some forms of violence every day Mm -hmm. um but that's just a displacement what what community accountability theorists call a dislocation right we're just locating it somewhere else Mm -hmm. but we're not actually dealing with the structures that allow that violence to flourish Mm -hmm. and the other thing we're doing is allowing a lot of violence to happen unseen within communities
0: yep yeah yeah so we're okay if you know um People who've caused harm move somewhere else. It doesn't matter where, you know. Yeah. But, no, and if uh, they're like
1: freezing like, to death in cold winters, exactly. Winter. Yeah. Like
0: it doesn't right. matter if you know where they go or what happens mm-hmm. to them, as long right. as they're not here and we get to you know preserve our property values and you know our own little notions of safety and what have you. Um, you know, right. the in in this piece and this is I think really important. Um, you help frame uh the argument in terms of Judith Butler's work mm-hmm. uh on precarity and vulnerability. And you talk about generation five um mm-hmm. as well, uh which takes a transformative justice approach to eliminating childhood sexual abuse in five generations. Um, You know, and you talk about these two things with regards to uh, pocket parks. Um, And I'd love for you to say a little bit about, you know, Butler's work um, on precarity and vulnerability and how you found uh, the work of Generation 5 useful.
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, So Butler's analysis of vulnerability, the way that she's looking at the way that some populations have to bear this burden um, of, the exploitation of their vulnerability in the name of safety of others, I think, is really um, is really helpful. It shows these dynamics, and she's interested in things like um, responses to terrorism, the way the U.S. state responded to 9/11, um, and the way that some lives um, some lives are are grievable. Right, so people who died in the towers on 9/11 are grievable. People who then died um, in the Iraq conflict. Um, in after the U.S. invasion, not grievable. And this is a, a gross simplification of her argument, but mm-hmm. the way that she's showing how vulnerability, a response to being shown to be vulnerable, right, that U.S. citizens can be killed um, in U.S. territory and to respond to that by killing a whole lot of people somewhere else as an attempt not just to respond to, but to prevent further vulnerability. Um, her analysis I think really vividly shows that dynamic um, in in nuanced ways, in ways that allow us to begin to think about where else that might be happening. Um, and then Generation Five, it struck me, is building as you said, they want to end um child sexual abuse within five generations, and they think the way to do that is through a transformative justice approach that doesn't seek to um punish wrongdoers with the hope of exploiting their vulnerability until they are incapable of c- committing harms, but rather to see how it was that harms were um, were possible within that community in the first place, right? Like, like what what made it possible, for instance, for Jerry Sandusky to operate in that Penn State situation for so long, It's not that Jerry Sandusky doesn't have responsibility in that situation and shouldn't be held accountable. It's that the analysis can't stop there and that individualizing that person who committed harm and saying, oh, this is just one bad apple in a situation that's otherwise just and fine um, is gonna lead us away from understanding how it is that these harms occur and that these harms occur through structures that we are all implicated, we're all involved in. And Generation Five really asks us to take ourselves seriously as um, participate, participants in those structures. And because we're participants in those structures, that also means that we can change them. Um, mm-hmm. But we can only do that together, right? Like we need friends. Um, and we need to be building our analysis with friends. And this is something that Communities Against Rape and Abuse, another transformative justice um, organization that I mentioned earlier, they talk about that you have to build your analysis together. Not everybody's going to start from the same place. And it, Kim, you mentioned this earlier about, um, about talking to folks who are kind of not there with prison abolition. And if you, think, if you think your job there and somebody who's sort of like, well, I don't know, I think maybe we need prisons, right? If you think your job there is to convince them that we don't need prisons, right, that's a way to approach it, but it's probably not going to work. But if you think, okay, something's going on with this person's analysis of harm Mm -hmm. that prisons somehow represent an answer to it. What if we talked about that analysis? What if we got together about, so how do you think child sexual abuse happens? And let's talk about, um, let's talk about the ingredients of it and how, how a child um, comes to be harmed in that way within a community. And it's a really, a community structure that makes that possible. Then I think, um, then you start You know, your analysis might change because of their understanding, Um, Mm -hmm. but they might also begin to see that prisons are not going to do much um, to change those structures, right? They're going to leave them largely intact, with some people feeling like maybe something happened that was helpful, but largely the underlying um, structures and practices of exploiting vulnerability are going to be still in place.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... I appreciate that a lot. And I think, you know, something that brought to mind, you know, from your other piece, not to be ping ponging back and forth too much, <laughs> is, the, is the concept of the of, uh, conflict theft. And I think, yeah. that, I think in this situation, like for me, it, it seems like a, a a very like ripe opportunity to uh, like arrest any potential for transformation yeah. in a situation like that. Um, yeah,
1: that's a great concept from the Nils Christie idea of conflict yeah that when the state takes over the conflict that the people who are involved in it don't have the opportunity to work on the conflict together right
2: and i think knowing that that system is there is kind of self-reinforcing in the sense Mm -hmm. that we see ourselves as like passive things that thing you know that things happen in our community and we're sort of passive recipients of it instead of right you know people who play a role in shaping the conditions and what's acceptable and and all that Um, One thing, you know, sort of related to what you were talking about towards the end there that I wanted to get your thoughts on, Um, you know, when we talk about harm, we often talk about it in terms of victims and perpetrators, Mm -hmm. uh, a framing that's not especially helpful for attempting to understand the complexities of harm uh, and how we can disrupt it and intervene and and prevent it from happening. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the victim perpetrator binary and tell us, you know, why you think this lens is um, not
1: useful. Uh, thanks for that question. Yeah, um, so I, one of the one of the or the set of experiences that really made that binary so clearly an ineffective way of understanding harm was was spending a lot of time in women's prisons. Um, and so I was involved in this organization that did a domestic violence class in a women's prison, and um, just the conversations that you have about domestic violence. Um, in a women's prison, it's, there's a lot of folks who can tell a story in which they both experienced harm and um, caused harm. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, it's hard to find people who don't have stories that show them on both sides of harm in that way. And that then also share them in, there are these um, sort of uh, large middle grounds where in ways they were, um, involved in a harm that they weren't the person doing the harming but in some way they weren't protecting somebody else or they weren't standing up for somebody right so these listening to incarcerated women talk about how harm operated in their lives it's it's just impossible to maintain a binary understanding um and especially because when they're talking about these harms they're doing so in an institution where the harm is continuing um through intimate relationships they have in prison, but also this this sort of state violence that they're so up against um, living in a prison and trying to survive in a prison. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of binary analysis that, for instance, with um, like intimate partner violence that we have, where it's like, there's one person who's the victim and there's one person who's the perpetrator. And we can really cleanly tell who's who and the perpetrator should be punished and the victim should be um, put in therapy and that'll be the resolution of it. It's just really much harder when um, somebody will have an ex- have had experiences of being abused themselves and then they will have had experiences of abusing a partner, abusing a child, or having a child who's abused by somebody else and they don't intervene in it. Um, and then they're they are seeing that child in the context of the prison, right? They have a family visit and they see a, a police officer, a, a prison officer doing abusive things towards their child in the context of a family visit in the prison, right? There's no binary in any of this, right? There's mm-hmm. no like clean victim mm-hmm. perpetrator. Um, and so the mechanisms of the state that we have that are, aren't are even really always all that interested in clearly identifying um, all of the victims, but really want to figure out who a perpetrator is so they can be punished you know, infinitely and um, in all these different creative ways the state has thought of. Uh, it just really misses, um, it just misses the complexity of how harm occurs in such deep and tragic ways. Um, and what I think com- community accountability activists are trying to do is really address those very complex experiences and allow for people to be um, thoughtful and take action in understanding how harm unfolds through time, intergenerationally, um, in intimate and public ways. And, And so what do we need to do in order to begin to change those structures? And it can, again, it can look as simple as not not forcing a child to hug somebody they don't want to hug, but it can also involve really complex work, like thinking about human vulnerability and how it's structured and thinking mm-hmm. about um, structures of race and class and gender and not letting those go, not letting that analysis um, fizz- fizzle out, you know, such that you then are uh, you know, in gender responsive justice kind of response mode, but you you keep those those different modes of analysis going at the same time. And again, I not I don't think any one person um, can do all this work. This is this is a community of people working together. And I think I think one thing that happens in academia is people get isolated and they think I've got to get tenure and I've got to write my book and it's all on me and I got to do it alone. All right, and it's sort of a, a microcosm of what's happening more largely in society. Right, like something bad happened to you buy a self-help book and go to therapy and you Mm -hmm. individually unwind that in your life and that's your project no these are community projects we got to be working on this together and finding ways to listen to each other and kind of build those new structures when it looks impossible right when it looks like prisons are going to be here forever they're not we can undo this um but we have to start taking each other seriously as the people with whom we're going to do it you know like it's the it's the guy next to you on the bus who doesn't smell that great, right? Like he's your friend in this and some pretty important ways. And you're going to have to work that out, right? Like you're going to have to think about that. So I, I travel on the bus with a toddler fairly often and I just really try not to teach her to be afraid of people on the bus, mm-hmm. um, but to see those people on the bus as part of the community on the bus, right? And that actually... Talking to people and engaging with them makes you safer than acting like you're mad and you're going to fight whoever is on the bus with you, right? And that your individual autonomy is the most important thing on the bus. The bus like, really shows that that's just not true. Damn right.
0: Sarah, why are you putting me out there like that? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I, not that I don't use that technique. I mean, I think I it mean, can be that's a like, but... <laughs> yo, that's my whole approach. Like when I'm on the subway, like don't fucking. Talk I know, and me. I, I think it can be useful.
1: I think it can be useful, but I think about the subway is sort of a different creature. The bus, the other people on the bus might make it stop for you when you're running to try to catch it. Right? Yeah. It's the other yeah, people yeah, on the yeah. bus true. all yeah. yelling at the driver who get that bus to stop. That's yeah. true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, the subway is a a whole different, you know, it's It's like when I'm, when I walk down to the subway and I'm alone, you know, and it's early in the morning and some dude rolls up on me and wants to talk about my hair.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: you might end up on the tracks. I mean,
1: totally. And there's a place for that. And that there's a yep.
0: community of people that ends up on the tracks. I'm kidding. This is no, but this. I hear this you. I hear you. Yeah, went way left. Um, but yeah, that's like.
1: but difference. I think we could think about like why is the subway structured such that you could have that experience, right? Exactly. Where it does come down to your ability to put that guy on the tracks, right? Yeah. Like that. I, why is that? You know, like, and could we? Can we do that differently? We could.
0: Oh, we um, totally could, but we, you know, yeah we're not engaging in in those questions and the people who are right. designing these spaces right. and right. you know things uh, for us don't usually include many of us, right? It certainly doesn't include. Right. I can't remember, you know, any kind of city, you know, meeting uh, or planning commission meeting that included philosophers, right? Like
1: <laughs> where <are> these <laughs> well, not in our professional capacity, right? Like, no, I
0: mean, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, even even outside of that, I mean, it's like it's just I, it, not in not in the last fifteen twenty years or so. But anyway, uh, um, but I also I think. In that yeah. experience
1: that you described, there's also something to be talked about, the, the fetishization of Black women's hair, right? Like, Absolutely. Like, we're going to have to undo that, too. Mm-hmm. For you to write well, the there's, subject.
0: There's a whole lot of undoing stuff, and, you know, and, and a and just the idea that you can approach or should approach a woman and you're using yeah. the guise yep. of, well, I'm paying you a compliment. Well, you right. know what? It's like 7 AM in the fucking morning. I'm not yep. awake. I'm yep. tired. My back hurts. My feet hurt. I have papers great or whatever it is that I'm doing. Yep. You know, yep. I have to go to a meeting that I really don't feel like going to and all this yep. stuff. And then here you come along with bad breath and nasty alone. Right. And you want to yep. talk Like, fuck out of here, man. Go keep moving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. And so, how do we change that? Why is there this
1: expectation about women that at 7 a.m. on the subway, you're going to be like, Totally into having that conversation.
0: Yeah, you have but to work I think that there, We also need to make space for for people to express that anger and not just you know. And, oh, and totally. Like yeah. We yeah. don't have to engage certain people. I I wasn't meaning to derail, and no pun intended, the conversation. <laughs> and, that yeah. oh, and I think, God.
1: yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, but think you're right about that sort of like. But we <laughs> have to deal with the situation as it is right now, and so I think, like, you know knowing how to throw somebody on the tracks, I mean, or just throw them over your shoulder is important, right? (laughs) Like, because that's the situation we're in. And so to not be naive about that, totally. I take your point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, something, um, something you said real quick, because I I don't want to, I want to respect your time here. Um, you talked about, um, the way butler describes uh, vulnerability and precarity and it's something that you said really resonated with me you know said we're all precarious uh but we're not vulnerable in the same way and i'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. um and i think that that's a really important um you know, set of concepts or ideas to kind of wrap our head around um, as we, you know, close out this uh, conversation. I know Brian has a final question, but I was wondering if you had, you know, just um, a few words that you could say about that, um, those ideas
1: of vulnerability and precarity. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think it is really, when you think about prisons, for instance, as an attempt to address vulnerability and reduce people's vulnerability. Um, There's there's something so tragic about it, right? Because it's like, well, this attempt to make people safer and to make people less vulnerable to harm. Um, But they are these sites of intense harm and the exploitation of vulnerability that we're setting up as an answer to vulnerability and safety. Now, in the United States, of course, the prison was set up to make white people, white settlers in particular, are less vulnerable. um, And to exploit the vulnerability, just the bodily vulnerabilities of people of color, of indigenous people, um, of immigrant workforces that are necessary for the economy to work, but who at a moment's notice can be um, put into one of these carceral spaces. And that that kind of offloading of vulnerability onto some, it's not that the urge to address vulnerability isn't um, compelling and isn't understandable. And of course, right, we don't want to see ourselves and the people that we have harmed. The idea that the best answer we can come up with is these institutions of massive harm. Um, I think just really under... under um, Appreciates the human capacity for doing better. we yeah. just but we have to understand that those stories about keeping us safe and all that are stories that are being sold in a certain way to uphold these racist, subtler um, institutions that are working for some people, right? and so so articulating or disentangling the desire for safety from these structures of racism, misogyny um anti-immigrant um, sentiment, like all of these these kind of col- the colonial structures of the United States right disentangling that desire from safety from those structures it's really quite hard and really um important to do and prisons only make sense as an answer if you don't do that disentangling
0: mhm
2: mhm totally well, <clears throat> I really appreciate your work and and your the time that you've given us today. Um, and you know, sort of on that last point, I was revisiting you know what you had to say about um, about the unfinished and, the, and sort mm-hmm. of the, the feeling of fear and anxiety that yeah. is provoked by sort of like recognizing the the contours of our world and the questions that we should be asking and how deep um, you know the problems really are and how sort of ill-equipped our purported solutions are to addressing them and um, that's a big long way of me asking you you know what you know you described abolition as a horizon which I think is a a really great way to put it I want I want you to tell folks what abolition means to you uh, personally
1: oh that's amazing okay um so I think it is this project that can't be finished where we're always trying to think about what it is um, we're trying to achieve in our communities um, together. And if we're trying to achieve something like safety, which again, I think is a great goal, then are the means that we are using to try to achieve that kind of safety, um, are they making some people desperately unsafe to try to achieve that goal for some of us? Um, so I think abolition, I've described it this way as prison abolition, nobody gets voted off the Island. It's like, we're all here together. And I think as climate change and, um, catastrophic climate change is becoming more real for people. That metaphor is not (laughs) a bad one, right? We're all on this Island together. Um, and if nobody's going to get voted off, then we're going to have to, then, then we're going to have to work with one another. And if the resources we have are one another, Um, Taking that really seriously, like, what does that mean in very deep and complex ways? Um, And I guess, like, just very quickly, prison abolition means that when I wake up in the middle of the night to um, something happening in the alley behind my house, I don't have to call the police, right? That I have this other way of responding to that fear-inducing, sort of heart-racing, that will make my community safer and that will build community relationships rather than risking somebody getting shot in my alley. right? That to me is prison abolition. And there's, so it's a a way of being able to live in the world differently um, that's hard to achieve, but we can do it, right? And we are doing it in small ways. So let's build that. Let's build that capacity together. Beautiful.
2: And where can people find your work or follow you, or how can they get in touch with you if they'd like?
1: Sure, Um, so I I do have an academia.edu site. I try to keep it updated. I'm always happy to send PDFs of any of my work. So if somebody wants to um, email me, um, I'm at the University of Colorado Denver. So you can always find me on that website. And I'm happy to share work that way. Um, And that's probably actually the, that's the best way i am i have always admired um kim's ability to use things like twitter um and social media so effectively and i am i'm so analog but um i would love an email and i would love to to um information share with people and if they have things they want to send me i would love to read them awesome well thank you
0: so much for being here today we both really appreciate your time and your energy and uh You know, your work has meant a lot to me over the years. I've read it and learned a lot um, from you. So uh, thank you so much.
1: Well, the feeling is definitely mutual and I really appreciate this podcast and what it's doing. And, you know, Kim, I've followed your work for a long time and really been inspired by everything that you're doing. And Brian, it's nice to meet you. And I so appreciate the work you're doing here.
0: All right, Sarah, take care. We'll talk soon.
1: You too. Thanks so much. You too. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you like this episode, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash prisons. And if you'd like to volunteer to help us transcribe our podcasts, please contact us at Beyond prisons Podcasts at gmail.com. We're also available to speak and to facilitate workshops. If you'd like to have us at your next event, please drop us a line. Thanks again for listening, and this too shall pass.